few years ago, actually many years ago at this point, Anna and I went on a trip to Hawaii. And when we went there, we decided to travel and do the road to Hana. It's one of the most uh, famous attractions there. But listen to me, because I love you, all right, I'm going to warn you, if you ever go to Hawaii, do not drive the road to Hana, all right? You're going to be like, oh, it'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be great. It's not, okay? I love you. I'm telling you now, don't do it. All right, the reason most people do it is because you have to drive this road in order to get to Haleakala National Park, which is awesome. Again, not worth it, though. Don't do the road, okay? So you have to drive this road. They're not even that far apart, but it takes like five hours to get there because the road is so long and so windy and so narrow and so dangerous and so crowded that you can only drive like 10 miles per hour at a time. And, and I don't think you're understanding me when I say it's long and windy. This is what it looks like there. That's the road, if you can see it. And if you're thinking, oh, that's not really that bad. There are cars in this picture. You just can't even see them, okay? So that's what the road looks like. And it was miserable. I thought we were going to die many times. It takes hours and hours to get there. Then you finally get to the park. And you're like, oh, this is great. We're having a good time. You spend hours at the park. But then the day is coming close to an end. And you have a decision to make. Because at the end of the day, when you're ready to go home, there are two possible paths out. You can either go back the way you came, and you can see how much that appealed to me there, right? (laughs) You can go back the way you came, and uh, that didn't appeal to me because of all the reasons I've already mentioned. But again, there were many times on this road where I legitimately thought we were going to die because you would end up in a situation like this. Um, I don't know if you can see what's going on here. There's not enough room for cars to pass, and uh, there are cliffs on one side of you. So you're driving, and that's your vehicle, and then there's the other vehicle coming. Who's going to risk their lives first? Not me, okay? I will sit there with my foot on the brake so you can do what you want to do. I thought we were going to die. I knew it was going to take many, many, many hours to get back, and I was just done at that point. And because everybody would be leaving at the same time, I was like, it's going to be even more crowded. We're going to have to drive even slower. It's going to be even more dangerous. Knock that one out. Don't want to do that. And then we found out there's a second option, all right? If you don't want to go back the way you came, they said, you can continue forward and drive forward. I was like, that's awesome. Why would we not do that? Well, they tell us why you wouldn't do that, because there's a sign that says, be, you know, be aware that if you do drive forward, the road forward is unpaved, mostly unpaved the whole way, and it is even more narrow, if, if you can imagine it, and uh, also it is even more dangerous because of a lot of various reasons. And so they said, we do not recommend traveling this road. You can do it if you want, but we don't recommend it. It kind of looked like this. Uh, This won't be the best picture, but you can see it's even more narrow. It's completely unpaved. And then the fun part they don't tell you on the sign is you're about to go around that bend. And since you've been there all day, the sun is setting on the other side. So as soon as you take this curve, the gravel dust goes up in the air. You're looking at direct sunlight. And guess what you can see before you? That's right. Nothing. So you're almost certainly going to die at that point because, as you can see, big old cliff to your left there. Is there another car coming? You get to guess and find out by driving forward. You don't know. So this was an incredibly dangerous way, even more narrow. It was a hard way to drive, and they said, you can do it if you want. And so those were our options. You can either take the slightly broader way that would be crowded but possibly easier to drive, or you could take the even more narrow way that is going to be less crowded, but it is going to be incredibly dangerous. And believe it or not, we did choose the hard way. (laughs) And Jesus tells us this morning, in a very similar way, when it comes to this life, 
there are two paths. There is a broad, narrow way, or a broad way that's easy to travel. It's very appealing. And there is an easy way. It's the broad way. And then you have the narrow, hard way. And Jesus is telling us this morning that the path you choose is the most important decision you will ever make because one of these paths leads to destruction while the other one leads to life. Which, just understanding that, should make everybody in here wonder this morning, am I on the right path? If there are only two paths and one leads to destruction, the other leads to life, wouldn't you want to know, am I on the right path? But what's amazing to me is the amount of people who never even ask that question. They never take the time to consider whether or not they are on the right path. You you see many people today who believe that this life is all there is. And so what do they do? They're content to go with a day-to-day routine. They wake up, they go to work, they come home, do it all again the next day. You're born, you make a life for yourself, you die, that's all there is. And so they never question it. What's even more concerning to me, I think, is the amount of religious people today who never ask this question. People who sit in a church every single Sunday and have been doing so since they were a baby. And they have never stopped to ask the question, am I on the right path? It's because many people today come up with their own idea of what true Christianity is, don't they? And they think, if I can just live up to my version of Christianity... If I can just live up to my own standard and what I think the faith looks like, then I feel no need to question if I'm on the right path because I've already decided that I am. Good for me. And Jesus saw that same attitude in many of the religious people of his day. He looked around at the religious people of his day and saw that they were living according to their version of the faith. And so Jesus wants to show us what true Christianity looks like. He wants to show us what the true path to God looks like, what it looks like to actually live out the faith as he intended it to be lived out. You see, he says we have two paths before us. One is the path of the kingdom that leads to life, and the other is the path of the world, and it leads to destruction. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves this morning is how can I know if I'm on the right path? How can I know if I'm on the kingdom path? That's the most important question that we can ask this morning because we want to know, are we headed for life or are we headed for destruction? And I want you to notice how Jesus begins to address this question. Look there at verse 12. He says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that's a very popular uh, Bible verse. It's one that a lot of people know. And uh, what's amazing to me is the amount of people in our world today who know that verse, who claim to be Christians, and then treat the faith as though being a Christian is the easiest thing on earth. Is that not surprising to us, church? Uh, Many people in our world today act as though being a Christian is the easiest thing on earth. And that's exactly how we've ended up with the problem of easy believism in the church today. It's because we treat Christianity as if it is easy, as if it's simple. We ignore so many of Jesus' words, and churches today have perpetuated this problem. 
You go to many churches today, and I'd say probably the majority of churches in America, and their primary focus is on getting people to make decisions. They preach decisions. They encourage decisions. They want you to come and make a decision, and that is their entire focus. Most churches in America today are more focused on getting people to make decisions than they are on making disciples. And Jesus told us to go and make disciples. You see, many churches today, they love to tell people how to get in, but the problem is they don't tell people what to do once they are in. And that's where the big misunderstanding comes from today. That's the reason that nominal Christianity has become the plague of our past century in the church. It's because the pastor said, come and make a decision, and that's all you got to do. That's the finish line. You're in. Just sit back and wait on Jesus to come or wait until you die. But that's all you got to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so what do we have in the church today? A bunch of people who did exactly what the pastor said. They made a decision. They call themselves a Christian. They say that they believe in God. And they think, what more is there? But you look at their lives. And here's what's amazing to me, church. Basically, nothing at all has changed in their lives. You look at their life before and after their so-called decision, and it looks exactly the same. So, so let me ask you a question. Can we truly say that Jesus has saved our lives if he hasn't even changed our lives? I mean, don't you think that's worth considering this morning? We have a bunch of people in the church today going around Jesus is saying, Jesus has saved me. Can we even say that Jesus has truly saved our lives if he hasn't even changed our lives? Don't you think there'd be a noticeable difference? And I say all this to tell you that being a Christian is much harder than modern evangelicalism would have you believe. And I know that's not popular. I know that's not something that's going to get a lot of amens. It's not something you're going to hear in most pulpits today. But I say it to you because it's true and because I love you. Being a Christian is much harder than modern evangelicalism would have you believe. And we would know that if we would actually pay attention to the words of Jesus. Because you read his words and you'll see that Jesus did not allow for easy believism. Uh, This happened on many occasions. Maybe you remember when the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, I'm prepared to follow you. What did Jesus say? Jesus did not say, that's great. I love that decision. Come on, join the crew. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what that decision is going to mean for your life. I'm going to tell you the demands that's going to have on your life. He said, go and sell everything that you own. And then you can come and follow me. And when the rich young ruler heard the the demands that following Jesus would have on his life, he found them to be too difficult. And he decided to walk away. There was another time, maybe you remember, when a man came up to Jesus and he said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, that's pretty interesting because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was telling this man, if you want to come and follow me, you're going to have to prepare for some hardships. There could be suffering. You might not even have a place to lay your head. You could be homeless. Is it worth it to you to do all that and still come follow me? And that man walked away. It was too much for him. Maybe you remember other times when people wanted to come and follow Jesus. He didn't say, all right, that's great. Find a place in line. Let's just go. We're headed to the next town over. You come and join us. Jesus consistently told people to count the cost of discipleship. He said no one builds a house without first considering the price of materials. They especially don't do that today. Uh, Jesus said, 
no general is going to go out to war without first considering the strength of force needed. And he said, no one should follow me until they have counted the cost of what that means for their lives. Until they have counted the cost of discipleship. And somewhere along the way, church, I don't know where it happened, but somewhere between Jesus and where we are now, we've lost that message. And we no longer tell people to count the cost. We never tell them about the hardships of Christianity. We just say, it's easy, come, pray a prayer, repeat this prayer after me, sign this card, you're in, that's it. Do you not think that is concerning that Jesus never once said any of those things? Our message should be to count the cost. And and the reason is because mankind is given to passivity. We know this, do we not? Mankind is given to passivity. If we had the option to do something or nothing, most of the time we're going to choose nothing. I mean, it started all the way back in the garden, right? You remember Adam and Eve? He stood by passively and watched his wife be tempted by the serpent and then plunged the world into sin. And then he said, that looked like fun. I guess I'll join you. Mankind is given to passivity. And Jesus knew this. And so he knew that if if he did not address our passivity head on, that we were going to bring it into his kingdom with us. And he does not want his kingdom to be a passive kingdom. The kingdom of God is an active kingdom. And so he has to address this, and he confronts our passivity directly with the golden rule. We love the golden rule, don't we? I mean, even unbelievers know the golden rule. They can quote it to you, just like Christians can. But what I want you to understand is that the golden rule is much harder than we might initially think. The golden rule has many more demands on your life than you might realize at first. And and You see, the people in Jesus' day, they would have known this because they were steeped in Jewish teaching and Jewish wisdom. And there was a, a, a very popular Jewish teacher. His name was Hillel. And he had taught the people this rule. I want you to listen to Hillel's rule. This is what he said. What is hateful to you Do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary. Now, everybody in Jesus' day knew that. And let me ask you, that sounds a lot like the golden rule, does it not? Hillel says, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That sounds a lot like the golden rule, but I want you to notice a key difference between the two. The Jewish teaching is stated in a negative. Don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. But let me ask, do you not see how that lends itself to passivity? I mean, it's not just passive, it's easy, right? I mean, think about it like this, right? I don't want someone to murder my family. So if I'm going to teach the Jew or keep the Jewish teaching, what do I do? Well, I don't go and murder someone else's family. Fair enough. I don't want someone to burn down my house. So I'm not going to go and burn down someone else's house. But again, Do you see how that's easy, right? You haven't even really done anything at all. If you you adopt that mindset, then it basically allows you to sit back and not do things that you were probably never going to do in the first place, but you also get to pat yourself on the back and say that you're a, a righteous law keeper and that you're morally upright because you haven't done things that you were never going to do in the first place. It's easy. Of course we like that way. But notice what Jesus does with the golden rule. He flips it right on its head, doesn't he? He takes what they knew, the Hillel teaching, 
And he says, all right, I'm going to flip this for you and say whatever you wish others would do to you. Go and do that for them. And that negates passivity entirely, does it not? I mean, that completely changes how we view others in our world. So for instance, let me give you an example here. Let's say that you see a homeless man on the street begging for help. If you were going to approach it in the, 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 the situation from the Jewish mindset, they would have you look at that person and say, okay, if I were him, I wouldn't want someone to be mean to me or, or yell at me, so you know what? I'm not going to do that to him. Well, good job you, okay, right? Like, you haven't really done anything at all. You, you decided not to yell at a homeless man. Am I supposed to clap for you? I mean, you've done nothing. But if you take Jesus' mindset, the mindset of the kingdom. You look at that exact same homeless man begging for help on the street and you say, if I were that man, I would want someone to help me and have mercy on me. Well now, that's different, isn't it? As a Christian, you know what you have to do now. Whatever you wish others would do for you, go and do also for them. Or or maybe you're at a restaurant and your waitress didn't do too great of a job and you're kind of angry with her, the Jewish mindset would have you look at that waitress and go, okay, she had a rough day, um, but if I were her, I wouldn't want someone to talk to my manager about me, so I'm not going to do that to her. Again, great. (laughs) Good for you, okay? You didn't talk to the manager. But the mindset of the kingdom would have you look at that same waitress and say, if I were her, and I was having a bad day, and I was off my game, I would still want people to be kind to me and tip me because it is my livelihood and I depend on it. Well, that's different, isn't it, Christian? Now you know what you have to do. Whatever you wish others would do for you, go and do also for them. Or, or maybe, maybe someone has hurt you. I don't know if you've ever been hurt, but maybe someone's hurt you. And you have a relationship in your life that is fractured and it's in need of reconciliation. If you approach it from the Jewish mindset, you'd say, okay, if I was that other person, I wouldn't even want to hear from me at all. So what I'm going to do, I'm not even going to call them. I'm not going to talk to them. That's probably what they want anyways. Well, you've just given in to your sin, have you not? You didn't want to talk to them and you're just finding a way to justify it. But if you approach it from the kingdom mindset, you say, if I were that person, I would want forgiveness. I would want mercy. I would want to be offered a second chance to be welcomed back in. And so now, Christian, you know what you have to do. The hard thing, right? Whatever you wish others would do for you, go and do also for them. Do you see what a radical shift is in the thinking that Jesus is putting forward here? He is taking what the people knew this bent towards passivity and choosing the easy way constantly. And he says, if you want to follow me and be part of my kingdom, I want you to understand that it is hard and it is a call for an active and a living faith. You see, what I want you to understand this morning is that being on the kingdom path means living out the kingdom's vision. We're asking ourselves, am I on the right path? How can I know if I'm on the right path? And Jesus is telling us here, being on the kingdom path means living out the kingdom's vision. You see, this verse is typically called the golden rule, but when you look at it in its context and you see what Jesus is doing here, you understand it's not even really a rule at all. It's a vision. He is putting forward a vision of what His kingdom here on earth looks like. 
a vision for how his people are to interact with other people. Jesus is saying, if you want to become one of my followers and be part of my kingdom, this is what it looks like for my people to interact with other people. This is what citizens of my kingdom do. It's the golden vision of God's kingdom. A a people who treat other people the exact way they themselves want to be treated. He is saying my kingdom is an active kingdom, full of living and active faith. And if you want to be my follower and be part of this kingdom, this is what it looks like. And it's hard, is it not? I mean, are we not given to the Jewish mindset? Don't we want it to be easy and and allow ourselves to be passive and not do anything at all? And yet Jesus says, I'm sorry, that's not the way. There is an easy way and there's a hard way, and my way is the hard way. So if you want to know if you're living the uh, the right way, if you want to know if you're on the right path, you should ask yourself, am I living out the kingdom's vision? Am I taking the passive, easy approach? Or am I actively seeking to do to other people and treat other people the exact way that I want to be treated? There's an easy way and a hard way. If you don't know if you're on the right path, I think the very least that we should do is consider the differences between the two paths, right? So so notice what Jesus says about them, verses 13 through 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, there is a popular way to interpret these verses, right? Uh, Most of the time when people look at these verses, they think in terms of behavior and conduct right? There's, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. And we tend to think in terms of behavior and conduct. And, and honestly, the descriptions of these two ways lend themselves to that kind of interpretation, right? So you see one way is described as being wide, easy, and broad. And those descriptions, they kind of call to mind the idea of loose morals, don't they? I mean, you might picture people on this road as being bad people who do bad things. They're the ones who lie and cheat and steal and cuss and gossip. They're the ones who get addicted to drugs and alcohol. You think of the broad way and the loose morality that comes with it, and you think those are the sinners. But then there's this other way, right? And this other way is described as being hard and narrow. And what does that call to mind, church? It calls to mind piety, right? You think of good people who do good things. You think about this way and you say, oh, those are the good people. Those are the ones who are going to church and reading their Bibles. Those are the ones who are praying, singing in the choir. They're teaching Sunday school and gospel groups. They're doing all these kind of things. They are good people who do good things. We even have a phrase in our modern English language that comes from these verses to describe such people. If you see someone living an upright, moral, pious life, you might say they're walking the what? The straight and narrow comes from these verses. And that's the popular interpretation. And so here's what ends up happening. You're asking yourself, am I on the right way? Am I going the right way? Am I on the kingdom path? And what do you do? You start looking at your own behavior and your own conduct and your own actions. But I want to tell you this morning that being on the kingdom path has more to do with motives than behavior. Being on the kingdom path has more to do with motives than behavior. In other words, it has far less to do with what you do, right? 
We're thinking about these two paths, and we're thinking basically entirely in terms of these people are doing bad things, these people are doing good things, and Jesus says it has far less to do with what you do and far more to do with why you do it. And isn't that what he's been preaching the whole time? This whole Sermon on the Mount, the the world has been looking at the outward appearance and the things that people are doing outwardly, and Jesus has been saying, I want you to look at the heart. I can see what everybody else is doing too. And Jesus says, but I also know what's in their heart. The world loves looking at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart because our motives matter more to God. And Jesus has been saying this throughout his entire Sermon on the Mount. This whole time, what has he been preaching, church? He's been saying we need a righteousness, right? A true righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A righteousness that isn't merely outward and physical, but a righteousness that is inward and it's a matter of the heart. So so then let me ask you, why then would Jesus preach that message the entire time, only now, here at the end of his sermon, to switch to a message on behaviorisms and conduct? He wouldn't, right? That seems highly unlikely. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge us to reconsider how we think about these verses, which is difficult. I know, we're Baptists, we don't like change, do we? I could close my eyes, I'll tell you who's sitting exactly where, because we're Baptists and I know your pew. All right, so I know we don't like change, but can we just be uncomfortable for a minute? Are y'all okay with that? Yeah? Okay, let's get uncomfortable. Because here's what typically happens. We hear verses preached a certain way for so long that we think that must be what they mean. But oftentimes those verses get ripped out of their context. These verses occur within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, correct? That context determines its meaning. And so here's what I want to do. I want to suggest to you that the easy Broadway is not primarily about people who are lying and cheating and gambling and stealing and doing all that kind of stuff. I want to suggest to you that it is primarily the way of the Pharisees, the way of the hypocrites, the way of outward righteousness. So in other words, we thought earlier that the people on the narrow path were the ones reading their Bible and going to church and doing all that kind of stuff, I want to suggest to you that also describes people on the Broadway. There are also people who are reading their Bible and going to church and singing in the choir and teaching Sunday school. And I want to suggest to you that the narrow way is the way of exceeding inner righteousness that Jesus has been preaching about. That righteousness that starts in the heart and then works itself out. In other words, it's the picture of what true faith looks like versus a picture of the Broadway. If you want a picture to describe it, it is is beautifully pictured by a whitewashed tomb. You remember that imagery that Jesus used? He looked at the religious people of his day, the Pharisees and others, and he said, you guys are great. You're doing everything you should. You're reading your Bibles. You're teaching. You're, You're fasting. You're praying. You're doing all these great things. Good for you. Outwardly, you've got it down. You look perfect outwardly. You're beautiful. The problem is, like a whitewashed tomb, on the inside, you're full of dead people's bones. And so, I actually think that these two verses here are the key to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. Once you understand that Jesus has been preaching these two ways the entire time, the whole sermon unlocks for you. You want me to prove it to you? Good, I will. I'll prepare it for your answer, all right? 
Let me prove to you that he's been preaching this the whole time. Matthew 5, 21. This is what he said. You remember this. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you, what is he saying here? He's saying there are two ways, notice that church, two ways to try to keep the command, you shall not murder. One way is to observe the letter of the law and not actually go through with the physical act of murder. Can we just be honest? As as much as sometimes we get irritated, that's pretty easy to do, is it not? Okay, we might feel sometimes like, okay, they're getting under my skin and stuff, but you're not going to go murder someone probably, I think, right? Someone say yes. Yeah, okay, good, 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 guys, good, right? Let's get some talking back here, right? So most people are not going to go murder someone. In fact, probably 98% of humans who have ever lived have been able to do that. I'd say that's pretty easy, don't you? Wouldn't you? You'd say that's pretty easy not to murder someone? But then Jesus says there's this other way. He says another way to try to keep this command is to keep the spirit of the law. It's to not even have anger in your heart at all towards your brother. And if you find that you do have anger in your heart towards your brother, you repent and you seek him out immediately for reconciliation. Now, clearly, two ways. I'd say one way is very easy, right? Well-traveled road. This other way, though, how hard is that? How many people in our world do you know who are committing themselves to not being angry with anyone ever, and if they do slip up and get angry, they're seeking out reconciliation immediately? I'd say that's a road that's pretty vacant, wouldn't you? Not very traveled these days. And it's amazing that once you have these keys to the Sermon on the Mount, how much you begin to see this pattern, right? So uh, Matthew 5, 27, this is what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's going to go on, but I say to you. Again, what's he doing? There are two ways, aren't there? Two ways to try to keep the command, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, One way is to never go through with the physical act of adultery. That's pretty easy to do. Okay, most people are not going to commit adultery. Some people will, but most people will not. That's a crowded way. That's a well-traveled path. It's easy. But then he says there's another way. And it's not to even look at another person with any lust in your heart at all. Is that easy or hard? Hard, right? It's so hard we can't even say it. I get it. (laughs) I mean, you look at the world we're living in now, I'd say that road is nearly empty, correct? Most people are not committing themselves to not having any lust in their heart. In fact, you hear people today go, oh, it's fine to look but not touch, as if that's acceptable in any way for a Christian or anyone who's married. One way is incredibly easy and well-traveled, broad. The other way is very hard and narrow and difficult. And listen, Jesus continues his entire sermon this way, right? Matthew chapter 6, we can knock three out at one time, can't we? Jesus said there are two ways to give, to pray, and to fast. One way is to do those religious activities for the audience of the world, right? I want people to see me give. I want people to see me fast. I want people to hear me pray so that they will think, man, that guy's holy. He is righteous. He is pious. I want to be like him. 
He says, but there's another way. It's to do all of those religious activities without caring if anyone else knows about it at all. So like when you're going through a drive-thru and you decide to pay for the person's food behind you, you don't have to post about it on Facebook. It undermines it completely, right? When you post about it on Facebook, you're like, listen, I'm not trying to brag, but I did buy the person's food behind me, you know, just hashtag blessed. Thank you, God, for that money that I was able to give back to them. Look, you did a good thing. Just let it be that, right? Don't post about it on Facebook. Your heavenly father sees you. Your heavenly father is enough, right? He says there are two ways to do all your religious activities, for the audience of the world or for the audience of one. Now, which one do you think is easy and which one do you think is hard? Which one do you think comes most naturally to us? Again, if you're not convinced yet, remember, Jesus said there's two ways to attribute worth in this life. You can either value the things of this world and store them up for yourselves, but understand that, uh, that rust and moths and everything else is just going to do away with it. Or you can attribute worth to the things of God and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Which one's easy? Which one's hard? Again, this is what Jesus has been saying the whole time. I mean, just consider this. He said there are two ways of dealing with sin in the world today. Two ways of dealing with sin. He said you can either start by judging and condemning others for the sin in their lives. It's pretty easy, right? Admittedly, something we like to do. We won't say that we like to do it. We're in church, but I know, I know. We like to do it. It's easy. It's well-traveled. He said, but the other way is to start by looking at your own heart and your own life and seeing what kind of sin you need to deal with first before you begin to try to help anyone else with their sin. How many people do that? Not a lot, right? It's a narrow road that few travel. So so do you see my point, right? You see how this has been Jesus' message the entire time. The whole Sermon on the Mount, he has been telling us there are two ways. And one way is incredibly easy, and the other way is incredibly difficult. And the fact that we have misunderstood these verses for so long is the reason that so many people today think that they're on the right path. It's the reason that so many people think they're walking the path of the kingdom. It's the reason so many people think that they are walking the straight and the narrow and that they're Christians is because they are focused entirely on outward actions and appearances. Well, I do go to church. I do read my Bible. I did make a decision. I say I believed in God. Good for you. The hypocrites did those same things. The Pharisees did those same things. Have we forgotten that Judas did all of those same things? Are we to believe that Judas is in heaven today? Any unbeliever can do good works. We understand that, right? Any atheist can attend a church service and read their Bible and sing. Any antichrist can go to church. Many of them lead churches today. I'm not going to call out a name. I had a name. I'm not going to do it. But if you know me, you know who it is. It does not take born-again believers to do these things. And so, listen, the reason I'm telling you this is because if religious activities and good works are your main proofs and your main sources of assurance that you are on the right path and that you're going on the kingdom path and you're making it to glory, I want to tell you, you're in a world of trouble. Because those things are no assurances at all. In fact, I want you to understand something this morning, that being on the kingdom path is not primarily about what you do, but rather who you are. That's what Jesus has been preaching the entire time. 
It's not primarily about what you do. It's about who you are. So if you look at your life and you go, well, pastor, listen, I did walk down an aisle. I did fill out a card. I made a decision. I come to church sometimes. I've got a Bible. I'll read it occasionally. I'll sing in a choir. I'll I'll teach Sunday school. I'll, I'll be a deacon. I'll do these things. Listen, that's great. You can do those things. Very thankful that you are doing those things. But at the end of the day, you can do all those things and still end up in hell. Because it's not about what you do. It's about whether or not you've been born again. When you get to glory and you stand before the judgment throne of God, He's not going to go down and see all the things that you have done. He's going to say first and foremost, Are you my child? Are you a born again believer? Because at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Are you religious or are you righteous? A person is not righteous because he goes to church or reads his Bible, because he sings or serves or does anything like that. That's a religious person. And like I said, a hypocrite can do that. The Pharisees did that. Judas did those things. No amount of religious activities can make you righteous in the eyes of God. And I want you to know that this morning. The only way to be truly righteous and to have this inner exceeding righteousness that Jesus has been talking about the entire time is to have the very righteousness of Christ himself. If you do not have that righteousness, you have nothing. There is no righteousness of your own. The Bible says that all of our good works are like filthy rags in his eyes. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, you have nothing. It is not about what you do. It is about what has been done for you. And so you need to know that only the person who has died to himself and to his sin... Only the person who realizes that no amount of good works would ever be enough to satisfy God. Only the person who turns from his sin and casts himself entirely on the mercy and grace of God in Christ and then puts all of his hope and trust and faith in the atoning work of Christ will receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. Only that person will be declared righteous in the eyes of God and it is not because that person has done anything to earn it or deserve it or merit it. It is because he has trusted in the one who has done it all for him. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, I want you to know, church, he meant it. He meant that there is nothing you can do to add to the work of Christ. It's been done. Our sin has been paid for. Our righteousness has been secured. Our justification is secured with His resurrection. Jesus has done it all. You need only turn and trust in that finished work of Christ. And God says, I will give you the very thing that you need. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. I will give it to you if you will put your faith and trust in Christ. See, when Moses stood before the people of Israel, as they were about to enter the promised land. These are the words he spoke to them. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. And I want you to know this morning, church, Jesus stands before us with a very similar offer today. He says, I've placed before you two paths. One which is well-traveled, appealing, and easy, but which leads to destruction. And one which is scarcely chosen, 
narrow, and difficult. But it leads to life. He says the choice is yours. You can keep going the way many people do today, focusing on outward appearances, focusing on outward actions, focusing on playing the part and being the most outwardly religious people that you can be. And pat yourselves on the back for it. Where he says you can choose the kingdom path. You can choose the way of inner righteousness and authenticity. It is much more difficult, yes, admittedly. It's impossible to do apart from Jesus and His saving grace? Absolutely. It's impossible to do apart from the Holy Spirit and His enabling grace? Yes. It will lose you friends and family members? Yes. It will lead to hardships and suffering and insults and mocking? Yes. But it leads to life everlasting. It leads to Jesus Himself where you will get to glory and He says, I will be your God and you will be my people forever. And so he says, choose today which path you will walk. Choose this day life or death. And for the sake of your souls, choose life. Choose Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.